the Wildlife Observer Network. Hey everybody, welcome back to Onward for Wildlife, a political podcast on Wildlife Observer Network. I'm Taiki James, and today is a special treat because this episode will be co-hosted by my friend Julian Nesbitt. Thanks, Taiki. Today we're going onward with how in the future our concrete cities can be new gardens of Eden. A new format, a new topic, and a new co-host. What else is new, my friend Julian? Say hi to the good people and let them know what we're talking about today and why. Yeah, thanks for asking. We'll be talking about all things wildlife today, from gray wolves in Yellowstone to mountain lions in California to elephants in East Africa. Now, what do those all have in common? They're all associated with restoration in the 21st century, fragmentation, and human conflict. Now, Julian, have you ever seen a mountain lion? I have. So I went to Yellowstone for like a science trip in high school back in 2016. And it was actually funny because they're like really rare in Yellowstone to see, but we were just really fortunate. And so it was just one of those spots in Yellowstone where like you and a bunch of other tourists are on a bridge with like stethoscopes. Is that, is that what those are called? Stethoscopes? Yeah, yeah, stethoscopes are really good at hearing things. I Maybe you're looking for telescopes. Telescope. There we go, there we go. So yeah, <laughs> everyone had their telescopes and their binoculars because in like a mountain far away, like there was a mountain lion that you could only capture with like binoculars to like, with, and you couldn't capture it with the naked eye. So that's where I've seen one personally myself. But in terms of where I'm from in Oakland, California, there have been multiple sightings, actually. Um, back in the beginning of the quarantine, um, my brother mentioned that he just saw one literally in our suburban neighborhood um, one day. Like, I think it was like a glimpse and you'll miss it kind of scenario, but it, was, it wasn't... <laughs> a glimpse and, and it'll bite right, you. Right, right. <laughs> it wasn't a cat, house cat. It wasn't a dog. So... There really were no other options, and there just have been multiple sightings in, like, the nature surrounding my area of mountain lions. And there's always, like, the warning signs in any of the parks you can go hiking in. There are the warning signs that this is mountain lion country, and so do these things in order to not get attacked. So, like, look big as possible. Don't bend down to pick up your kid if you're with a kid. Um, I <laughs> Leave yeah. the kid! I, I try to have to figure out like how exactly to, to like lift a kid without like bending your knees because it's like how's yeah you can't leave the kid it's a bad story it's a really bad you get you can't yeah leave we the all kid. so <laughs> wow oh wow man so that that's what a what a reality and that's just in Oakland California and I know too you're a recent California I am yeah you know and I know getting to know you I understand you have an appetite for the natural world uh what did you study how did that start because um, you know I think that's that's part of the reason why you're yeah opposed. exactly um basically I've always been really into animals and nature since I was a little kid I grew up watching a lot of animal planet Nat Geo wilds Discovery Channel because like most kids will be watching like Disney Channel and Nickelodeon, and I did my fair share of that. But 
I have the most fond memories of watching like those shows at Animal Planet and Nat National Geographic. So that's where I got my fascination and it was definitely an obsession. Like there was a time like I refused to read any fiction books that weren't about animals, mm. which looking back was pretty right. weird and but I, I've grown up out of that now, so I, I'm a lot better about that. I've matured. But um, you're not weird anymore, is what you're saying? I mean, I'm or? still pretty weird, yeah. But that part of me, that's been taken care of. But yeah, even right, like when right, I was growing right. up, like I'd have all my posters in my bedroom would be literally animals, and you can't see it, but like there's still like this um, poster of like a mother polar bear with two cubs like snuggling that I got back in like fourth grade like 15 years ago and that's just still up in my bedroom because i don't have anything else to replace it with so um yeah that's just how wow. Wow. pervasive if that's the right word that's how pervasive it was <laughs> and so then i you know i get to high school so we're actually learning about this stuff and i'm really doing really well in biology life science uh like chemistry is another story and even biology in college is kind of another story but I was really passionate about it for sure in high school and um I went on some science field trips so the Yellowstone one I mentioned I've also been to Costa Rica and Baja California so there's really solid opportunities my high school gave me and then besides that I just kept it going I majored in environmental science in college and that's where I learned about the other important aspects of environmental science in a natural world besides looking at cool animals. It's about the relationship with people and environmental justice and those issues that are becoming more and more present today. So with that, I graduated college in 2020. And so of course it's time to start networking more and figuring out what my next steps are, what exactly my career is gonna be. And so that comes into how I met you, Taiki. So basically, um, I first, I didn't meet you personally, but I first saw you um, with the Black Mammalogist Week. There was a panel you were hosting, and it was just talking about Black Mammalogists. And it was really cool because, to be honest, I hadn't really seen Black people in those kind of field, that field, mm. those positions before. And so that was refreshing to see, definitely. And then I heard about Black Birders Week and stuff like that. And then with the fellowship that I had at the time, we got I got a, you know, those emails they send out about opportunities for conferences yeah. and stuff like that. So I heard about the Taking Nature Black mm -hmm. Conference. And so I, right. I went there. And sure enough, you were doing another panel or you were listed as another panelist. Runner, yeah, exactly. And so I was, I decided to message you to see if I could do like an informational interview with you because I was doing a bunch of those with lots of different people, and I figured you'd be someone logical to do it with. And then, sure enough, that just went from me just looking to just get some questions answered about the field to you literally inviting me to do an episode, and it was really as basic as that. Right, right. I mean, I, I when I met you, something just hit me like, dang, wow, there's like, from my perspective, I haven't met another young black man trying to do this wildlife stuff, you know, trying to have an understanding about it in a way where we can share it with people, have some fun with it, 
And and this podcast thing that I'm doing, you know, I don't think I'm going to do this forever. But I definitely think it should exist in perpetuity. So maybe there's a there's a future where where it's just you hosting, you know, I think that that can exist. Um, But it's just, you know, something really just hit me that I, you know, would like to see. You know how you cultivate. I mean, and before we actually started recording, you were talking about your background in drama, theater, and musicals. So I was just like, "Oh wow, I'm there, no real skills are being cultivated here." He's just sharpening the the spear already. Like he he has his speaking down, um, and and that, I think that's really terrific because it's nice to have a, like a blend of talents and a bit blend of backgrounds coming together to talk about things that people may not see as connected. You know, and I know that our topic today is going to hit on the issues of disconnection, wouldn't mm-hmm. you say? And yeah, going back to what you were saying about you not seeing someone like me before and me not seeing someone like you before, like I think that disconnected metaphor is very applicable to when it comes to finding more Black people into wildlife and stuff like that. And the thing is, I definitely had it biased, thinking I really was the only one and like I was exceptional because of that. But I've matured again, and I know that's not the case. You are exceptional, <laughs> though. You are exceptional. Black Pre- excellence is on this podcast I all the time. Appreciate Absolutely. that. Uh, but mm. but yeah, my point was that we're not exceptional in that we're the only ones who are into this kind of stuff. There are Black people who do have those interests. It's just like there are barriers with, I guess, access, uh, privilege, um, and just being able to congregate together in like, I guess, even in natural park spaces that are still often seen as just a whites only space. So all those things kind of tie into that, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, it's great that you're bringing this perspective of someone who, like me, just consumed a lot of wildlife media. And now you're a creator of it. And now you're 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 sharing the knowledge of of what brought you here so far and you know we're trying to address those disconnections we're trying to address how you know in some ways our habitats where we feel safe where we grow is disconnected from one another you know like you are exceptional in your habitat i'm exceptional exceptional i'm doing well in my habitat i'm doing the best i can mm-hmm. <laughs> And, you know, and I think it means a lot if we can actually be connected through something, you know, right now it's through this mm-hmm. podcast, um, but also it's just through the black network, you know, and I know that's not an organization that exists or anything like that, but just like all the events that you name had black in it, blackity black, black something. And, you know, that's, that was something that connected us, you know, and um, we, we can see the issues of fragmentation. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Okay, Taiki, so I've already mentioned Yellowstone and my personal experience there, but I just have a question for you. Have you heard of the story of wolves and Yellowstone? Yes. Isn't that like um, the wolves and the three pigs where he blew down the, the, the twig house and he blew down the hay house and then he blew down the brick house, but he couldn't blow down the Yellowstone house? Is that what it was? <laughs> I guess you could put maybe a spin on that. Like maybe that was a deeper meaning to that fairy tale. Like the pigs were using up all the resources, like all the hay, all the twigs and all the 
Yeah, no Whatever one ever says like bricks. I, yeah, like no one ever says what it took to make that. They just assemble, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. they don't look into like what had to be taken down and stuff like that. And maybe the wolf is the real hero of the story because he's blowing it down, putting it back where it belongs, maybe, and just it is pollinating. That is how you pollinate. Yeah, and then he's just redistributing those resources the way they should be redistributed so i guess maybe in a way you are right (laughs) thank you (laughs) i appreciate you meeting me at my reach for sure for sure and uh well basically um the story of wolves and yellowstone um it was the most immediate example that came to my mind when thinking about restoration and public access yeah, chances are you listeners probably know the basics of this story too if you're if you listen to a lot of wildlife podcasts. But in case you don't, here's a brief rundown. Yellowstone was declared a national park in the 1870s. The colonizers that encountered this quote unquote wilderness, they fell in love with all of it, except for the wolves. Wolves kill things and are aggressive, so they must be mean, evil, etc. And for centuries before, wolves were always seen as like a villainous character, a villainous archetype in all these fables. So this negative attitude resulted in people persecuting wolves and wiping them out from Yellowstone altogether by the early 1900s. So for nearly a century after, without wolves, their prey, mainly elk, overran Yellowstone and pushed populations of organisms like willows, which are the elk's diet, and beavers, which depend on the willows, to decline. So basically, because everything in an ecosystem is connected, wolves being gone hurt other organisms as well. So when when we reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone in 1995 and controlled more of the elk population, these other organisms and the Yellowstone ecosystem as a whole (coughs) finally had breathing room and bounced back. They could survive and thrive. In the decades since the wolves come back, scientists have used their story as an example when trying to reintroduce large carnivores to damaged ecosystems across the globe, from India to East Africa. Wow. Well, then there you go. The wolves mm-hmm. come back happily ever after, return of the wolf pack. I'm sure mm-hmm. that there would be a remix of that. A conservation success story that everybody can love. How wholesome. Yeah, that sounds very happily ever after, I agree. But as it turns out, the story of Wolves and Yellowstone's successful comeback isn't as black and white as it may seem. So researchers have talked about how willow groves haven't returned to every corner of the park where they previously were. They haven't recovered all the way because the streams changed significantly when wolves were absent. In other words, the conditions changed so much over the period where wolves were gone that it's really hard to restore willows. Mm. Well, why is there disagreement about the reintroduction? Because, like, if you wanted to reintroduce wolves, and, like, of course they're going to have an effect, like, isn't that, wasn't that, like, the point? Well, yeah, definitely, and... I guess the main reason there's disagreement is because there hasn't really been enough time and resources to fully map out how the wolves have affected the area and to really get that definitive answer that scientists can all agree on. Mm. Because at the end of the day, nature doesn't pay attention to time the way we do. And its goal 
really isn't to give humans all the answers we ask for. Mm. That hurts. I know that that hurts people to hear because I know people that are, that probably garden probably feel that too. Consist <laughs> <laughs> so considering how much pushback there was about the wolves' reintroduction mm -hmm. from local ranchers back then and today, do you think we'll get any definitive answers to these questions sometime soon? The Guardian Watchmen programs. I talked about it on a previous episode, and one of the things I up I highlighted was how in 2017. Uh, Catanian federal government committed $25 million to help support existing and establishing more programs in the First Nations. And, you know, I do think it is important that when we think about decolonizing our progress, you know, when we think about conservation, that we, we think about how we got here and we think about how there were people here, practices here and, and management traditions that not only answer had answered these questions in the past, but I think have a really great opportunity to be a part of the solutions today. Yeah, I agree, definitely. But that's still really cool to hear about how people are making those strides to making that vision happen. In the end, it seems that how we move forward, it is important to meet ordinary people where they are when it comes down to conservation. Because, of course, the bigger abstract question how did we get here it, it it takes a lot to answer that question but i think that when we talk about conservation let's also think about the wildlife itself i think it's important that we even rethink our views on large carnivores people didn't like wolves back as you said in the 18 you know 16 you know back when it was like you know kind of like a fairy tale thing um and there's still a lot of people that don't like them now i mean I think the Minnesota Minnesota Timberwolves are an all right wolf, but I'm not a Minnesota. Right. Yeah, people like the idea of carnivores existing, just nowhere near them. But that reality just doesn't exist, especially as we become more closer in contact with one another. And it truly never did to begin with. Before white people came to Yellowstone, indigenous people already knew that landscape inside and out and coexisted and coexisted with the wolves and other large Yellowstone predators there. This idea of a wilderness that is separate from civilization is inaccurate. The wolves certainly don't recognize that idea of boundaries, especially since packs outgrew those Yellowstone borders shortly after their reintroduction. Yeah, I guess no one gave them the memo to just stay in Yellowstone. Um... Right. <laughs> now, is this, you know seeing how wildlife is wildlife uh, how does this reality look in other parts in the world where else is this a problem with you know large carnivores and civilization yeah i would say another area on the other side of the atlantic ocean that i thought of was in east africa tanzania where we have the same issue of large predators killing livestock. And this time it's lions are the focus, focus instead of wolves. And however, I do think there are a couple of key differences with the wolves of Yellowstone and the lions of the Serengeti. Right. Um, do you think it's because, you know, people in the U.S., Americans, American culture, we talked about wildlife media, 
Is it because all that wildlife media really makes majestic the lions and not so much the wolves? Is it, you think it's just a bias? Right. I think there's favorable views toward lions in general, and that especially comes from the Western world. I mean, lions are everywhere in pop culture. And if you look back at history again, like lions are like, what's the word for like a royal family and like the regal the coat of arms like a lot of them will have like lions on them so that idea of nobleness with lions has been around as long as like wolves have been vilified Mm. so i think that definitely is the difference in america but it's interesting because i keep seeing headlines about how there are only eighteen thousand to thirty thousand lions left in the wild and they're more vulnerable than we like to think. And so I think the tourism industry also helps a lot with those conservation efforts, though. So therefore, I think more people on paper are down with supporting lions than wolves if they were presented with the two. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was also just recently it was Leo season. So I think that <laughs> that does have a role. We have to consider that in our calculations here. Um, mm-hmm. Now. I've seen lions at the zoo, I think. I haven't been to the zoo in a long time. I don't yeah. know if I've ever seen a wolf. So, you know, to some degree, I'm not going to lie. I can't really in- see how big a wolf is. I know they're big ones. You know, I've seen pictures on the internet, but I've never right. really seen anything in person. But let alone in the wild, I don't know how I would act. And I also don't know how I would, you know, uh, um, how I, mean, I can assume how I would react if my living my my livelihood was based off of livestock and that livestock well happens to also be scrumptious for some of these large carnivores and so you know uh do you think there's something wrong when you know there's something in in deep conflict when humans are fighting off these large carnivores to defend their livestock by any means necessary because i know it can get pretty brutal well at the end of the day no um, I don't think they're doing anything inherently wrong. They're just finding their way of life. Well, I mean, like, imagine there's a farm, you know, like I'm thinking if you're a farmer and you got farm animals, well, you don't want those farm animals getting sick. Okay. Mm-hmm. You also don't want those farm animals dying. Okay. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that they may die is from something that is hungry and, and, and mm-hmm. probably has sharp teeth and, you know, probably operates in the dead of night you know and and then that could be scary and so scary in like Mm -hmm. just literally the way that i said it but then also scary because like your economic mobility is at stake from wildlife being wildlife so you know if you're a farmer put in that position doesn't it make sense to use any means necessary to make sure your economic opportunities aren't dwindled by the lion or the bear or the wolf yeah, absolutely. And even if it isn't the lions that are doing the direct killing of livestock, you just, you don't have time to think, I don't think you have time to think about those technicalities. Like if it even was like hyenas or leopards that got those specific livestock at the moment, like if there are lions in your area, you're probably going to go after them. And yeah, those retaliatory killings are definitely 
the sort of number one enemy of species are coming in closer contact with increasing human development because of all that encroachment. Yeah, so going off of that, um, do you think there's a bias as to what wildlife we focus our advocacy for? Because you were talking about how like Western images, social constructs make us view lines in particular ways. So you think that also affects how we, I guess, fight for these particular wildlife, how much energy we give? Absolutely. A absolutely. I think, um, you know, and I'm not going to talk about my nine to five, but if you know anything about my nine to five, uh, birds are a vehicle of, 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 of attention, of motivation, of inspiration. And, you know, there's so many things you can do with a picture of a bird. You can make people feel sad. You can make people laugh. You can make people think you can make people feel pride. And, you know, it's not often birds are going to scare you. You know, it's not often birds are going to give you a view um, that that makes you think something negative. Now, that's me saying it. I know and I, I highly recommend listening to Always Be Birding podcast. She does these creature features. She did one on the European starling. A masterpiece. A masterpiece. Please listen to that. It'll be in the show notes. And... You know, and I do think that what we see as worthy, what we see as worth sacrificing, come from Western standards that are based on Eurocentric norms, based on even some religious traditions, you know, our views of some of these animals. And, you know... No one talks enough about how in The Lion King, in the beginning of the movie, all the animals are assembling to see the birth of the prince. Okay. But then Scar drops Mufasa in the canyon and then all the wildebeest run over him. And it's like, weren't y'all all at the meeting? Don't y'all know who that is? What? <laughs> And it made me not like, it made me not like them. I'm like, you know, it's kind of unfair, but like, that's the media. But then at the same time, I'm like, well, the media must got it confused because how are they at the assembly? And then in the next scene, they running over the king. I don't know how that works, but you know, like it, it's crazy how even depictions of animals through art like that, none of that, no real lion was harmed in the making of that film. But that view of that, seeing that, like, oh, Mufasa's down, and, you know, like, it's wildebeest, you know, you it's not, I'm not even saying, like, one wildebeest, like, I'm just saying all of it is a wildebeest, all of the, everything that's moving, you know, like, it's one organism, like, I'm monolithicizing this animal that I'm putting a pejorative on, based on this narrative, and other than that, I've, I haven't interacted with a wildebeest, you know, like, is there... Like there was the Lion King. Is there a wildebeest king out there where we can understand now from the wildebeest perspective what was going on? I don't know, but I I don't have that perspective. I mean, to be fair, I guess in the wildebeest defense, I think, I don't know, when I ever watched that movie and that scene, I just thought like it was kind of like an accident. Like, because remember like the hyenas are making them all panic and not think and like they're stampeding. And so like, I don't think they paid attention to the fact that, oh, they're trampling. Mufasa while trying to get away from the hyena. So I don't think they were intentionally trying to kill Mufasa. 
I'm glad you came to the defense of the wildebeest. Nobody does. Okay. <laughs> or at least nobody that I know does. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. But I guess a more personal example for me with like how we attitude shift with different animals. Um, well, basically, I actually studied abroad in East Africa in college, Tanzania. And um, one of the parts of the program that they kept hyping up was actually talking to poachers directly and hearing their perspectives about why they do what they do. And so, of course, yeah, poachers are probably not, poachers are always going to be kind of vilified when it comes to protecting animals and conservation. So I was getting a little nervous, like, ooh, would it be tense? How would it, how, what would things be like? And, but when we met them finally, they were just, they were very chill, very casual, just people trying to get by. But in the end, um, this is my personal bias, basically, but I was expecting them to talk about hunting elephants or lions. But um, no, it was just buffalo, zebra, wildebeest. And I was like, no, oh, okay, then that's fine by me. Like, you got to do what you got to do. But I don't know if I would have the attitude if it was lions or elephants, like these animals that we put so many, like, human characteristics on like i because i feel like you don't really get those human characteristics placed upon a zebra or a wildebeest where you will a lion or an elephant because again of like all the media we're talking about and just the way they're used in religion and stuff like that so that's my personal example all right so these problems of habitat fragmentation and Wildlife reintroduction will only grow in the future as human settlements grow. So how can our society manage 10 billion people? That's like the yeah, yeah. prospective number, right? Um, while also giving sufficient resources for wildlife as well. How can conservationists get wildlife what they need while also hearing the concerns of regular people, like the locals in Tanzania with their livelihoods? Basically, in other words, again, how can, we, how can we be equitable about all of this? One thing that is clear, we'll have to use our imagination like never before. What if we just rethought wilderness in cities and in human settlements? Because would you agree, Taiki, that cities are ecosystems the way deserts are, the way savannas are? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, for me, bird watching as a birder, cities are my favorite ecosystems. You know, I, I love bird watching uh, in cities, uh, especially when I can go birding and then immediately go to brunch. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have to drive anywhere. Exactly. Like, that's always great. You know, like, that's the dream. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, you know, it's tr you really laid out some really great questions. And I think the lack of imagination towards the answer to my to the question that you just asked me about seeing cities as ecosystems i think we lack imagination there you know and i think there are really great solutions if we just open our minds a little bit yeah absolutely and one of the best examples of this reimagination that i researched has been with wildlife corridors so i first heard about wildlife corridors in relation to mountain lions so there's a tie-in to the beginning question of the podcast have I seen a mountain lion? Yeah, wow. And essentially, these bridges designed for wildlife like mountain lions have been placed over highways to help avoid fatal collisions between car and cat. And 
again, while humans have died from these collisions, the mountain lion has definitely had a higher proportion of deaths when it comes to those collisions. But yeah, not only do wildlife corridors save animals' lives and in turn human lives, they help solve the fragmentation problem. Why? Because nature is connected and we are a part of nature no matter how unbelievable that may seem sometimes. So it's really time to stop viewing nature as that quote-unquote wilderness that's separate from the human experience and realize that it's an integral part of our lives that should be reflected in our cities. Cities are an ecosystem like any other, and wildlife corridors can allow more organisms to move and survive in it. And when you were talking about bird watching in cities, that just made me think of literally a few days ago when I was at Lake Merritt in Oakland, and of course there's lots of waterfowl there, and they actually have an area reserved for um, for like the ducks and the geese specifically if they want. Basically, there was a hawk that day there, and I definitely seen a lot of fluttering of wings from pigeons. Um, so you could tell like it was, I guess, kind of stalking them, but nothing major. But it was up there in that tree, so that was really cool. But then I'm sitting on the bench, like, it's a fenced area, so I'm on the opposite side of the fence. Uh, but then, out of nowhere, a pigeon flies in my direction, and there's a hawk right after it. And I swear to God, they're literally this close to my, or like this, close to my face. And it's like, of course, I'm being all startled and trying to defend myself, but they weren't attacking... Clutch your pearls. <laughs> but they weren't attacking me or anything, but basically... They just like kind of dodged me, I guess. But I literally saw the hawk in its like full display, pretty much. Like I could see, I could see its beak and its eyes and its talons. It did kind of feel like I was in an actual nature scene. And this was literally in, literally in an urban part of Oakland. So, yeah, cities are one hundred percent an ecosystem. <laughs> you, you don't have to wow. go far that's, to have. That's also a great move. You don't have to go far to have wildlife encounters that you'd see on like animal planet exactly exactly and i think that you know kind of like what we're finding out connecting habitats there's a benefit to that you know and 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 cities can be one of the ways to do it uh, this podcast is a way to do it um but what is a way that you've seen wildlife corridors work in the world maybe the biggest example yeah um elsewhere in the world I think there are clear examples, even clearer examples of why wildlife corridors save both wildlife and humans. Because as mentioned before, humans and wildlife will come into contact far more often due to those growing human settlements and encroachment. Uh, but And nowhere is this more true than again in Tanzania, Kenya, East Africa. Because we've talked about how the presence of lions can threaten local people's livelihoods and other large carnivores. So there's a lot of unease when it comes to conservation efforts surrounding these creatures. But there actually is another iconic African animal that's even more controversial in East Africa when it comes to mm. conservation, and that is the elephant. The elephant? The gentle giant? Yeah. The never forget? The loves peanuts? Scared of mouse? <laughs> elephant? No way. Yeah, Dumbo? Yeah. Bar. Yeah, <laughs> elephant's got good marketing out there. Um... You know, the elephant that did, uh, wasn't there an elephant in Jungle Book? 
no tarzan so, the elephant in tarzan tantor yeah yeah yeah, tantor. yeah okay well then okay well then i don't know as many elephants as i thought but still shout out to the elephants yeah. what's yeah what's and happening? also in o- oakland the a's like elephants their mascot so oh yeah very very pervasive <laughs> shout out to oakland and so yeah, like all those char- all those characters, all those traits that we listed, that those images, um, that doesn't take into account that elephants do have a body count, for oh. lack of a better word. Like, <laughs> I remember watching all these programs again on Animal Planet, showing all the animals that have killed the most people each year. I think hippos are number one. Like they always have a high body count, and then elephants—they're not too far behind. Like at least a hundred a year or something like that. Elephants killing a lot of people. A lot of that is because of the increasing encroachment of human settlements that come into conflict with elephants' ancient migratory paths. So when they're imagine being an elephant and just migrating, doing mind your own business, but you have all of these human settlements there all of a sudden. You have people trying to defend their homes against anything that threatens it. And in turn, you add things like elephants having bad night vision and things like that, then it's going to be a recipe for disaster in the end. So that's why I think having wildlife corridors in that area of the world is super important. I think that could really help alleviate a lot of that pain on both sides. But of course, that doesn't answer all the questions because a lot of elephants will raid crops as another food source. So there is that issue there as well. Yeah, I mean, and and, and I can see how then, you know, you, you throw in the element that, you know, they're not too, you know, visibility isn't great at night, similar to, to us humans. And, you know, when you stub your toe on something, <laughs> yeah, I... I I don't want to talk about it. You know, like I want to, I want to heal and move on. So, you know, imagine that I was an elephant sized, you know, toe stub. I I don't think it would, you know, from a human perspective, seeing that, I don't think I'd feel very safe. Um, Exactly. But what do you do then to feel safe? Yeah. So yeah, the locals aren't going to see elephants the way we necessarily see it all the time and again western media so about fixing those problems it's not about being negative negative it's about being practical and i guess we learned about this also in that study abroad trip too but um we were learning about those solutions that people were coming up with things like electric fences um to using bees because elephants don't like bees apparently and also chili like putting chili on fences. I guess elephants don't like the presence of chili either. Mm. But again, there still isn't enough like experiments, resources, time to fully flesh that out and see if that's truly effective. Like, will that make elephants stop raiding the locals' crops? So that's still a good conversation over time to have over time. Right. And, and part of that over time that we're looking at is how population is growing, how human settlements are expanding. And Mm -hmm. that has a direct effect on human wildlife conflict. And specifically, it is not a black and white issue, right? Because it's not, it's not overpopulation isn't a real 
people say that to to really say other things and what they're missing is that resource distribution like we were exactly. talking about the big bad wolf was trying to do yeah <laughs> was trying to do but then just got a bad narrative and it's uh, like the earth isn't overpopulated we just have people with a lot of money with a lot of resources that aren't distributing it yeah i couldn't couldn't put it better like long story short it is kind of you have to be down with billionaires Except for maybe Rihanna, because it's Rihanna, so yeah, I not think much that's to do about a... that. Like, it's right. Rihanna, so Rihanna conservation, always. exactly. Rihanna conservation is important on this podcast. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Hey, everybody! If you're still listening, thank you. First of all, second, um, Julie and I have been working on this episode for the last couple months. So, you know, there's been a, a lot of incredible work that has went into it. We do have some topics that didn't necessarily make it into that first part. Um, but I thought this would be something that's still kind of interesting. Maybe we do a full episode about it, but it's kind of like a small, small thought. And I saw this news a while ago about Russian scientists trying to revive woolly mammoths to halt Siberia's warming crisis. So they're trying to bring back animals to address a current land conservation issue. As you know, it is related to climate, but it's a land conservation issue. They're trying to use wildlife to bring that back. Kind of sounds familiar, I know. <laughs> um, but they're bringing back, like, like they're bringing it back to life. It's not just like reintroducing. They're like re, uh, yeah, reviving. So what what are your thoughts on that? You know, because I do think it's like. I mean, the science, the, the, the headline reads kind of crazy. Russian scientists are trying to revive woolly mammoths. So yeah. Siberia's, you know, like that sounds crazy. But like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I guess like my gut feeling was maybe in this case to kind of let the past be the past. I mean, yes, when it comes to mistakes, previous generations in the past have made that make life frustrating for all of us creatures today be it environmental destruction, racism, sexism, and so forth, all the phobias. Um, like, these weren't that long ago in the grand scheme of things, so we should absolutely work to rectify those because we do have that power. We just need, like, the will. But something that happened, like, five to 10,000 years ago, like mammoths and all the other big Pleistocene animals dying out it was in a time that was just so unlike our world today i just think like we need to look at our priorities mm -hmm. and really look at what we can do because we mentioned before that nature doesn't really care about time so it's not going to give us all the time to figure out how to accurately bring back woolly mammoths in the way woolly mammoths were thousands of years ago so i just again yeah just focus on different priorities and because, like, in a way, I view this the same way I view the need for us to get to Mars and to get all the billionaires into space. Because we have all these messes happening right outside our doorstep. And it's just why can't we get resources to fix our home that is our home? And then, of course, there are the ethics behind going to Mars that I think are very similar to bringing back extinct animals like mammoths. And I guess another question is, like, yeah, maybe it's, a lot to bring back mammoths that were have been dead for thousands of years. But what about something like the passenger pigeon that we just wiped out only in the 1900s? Mm. And it's like, there was no need for that to happen. Right. And we 
maybe things would be better if that bird was back. And so how we pick and choose that and go back into, ooh, who do we give intrinsic characteristics to again? Mm. It's back to that, I, that conversation. So we could definitely tie all this in and get more into it. And maybe in a future episode, we might. And that is looking like a wrap on wildlife. Uh, thank you so much, Julian, for doing this with me, being patient through the process. T the P, trust the process. <laughs> you know, it's a Philly joint, but, you know, I had to bring mm -hmm. it through for the interview. And, you know, I look forward to creating more content, you know, and, and trying to educate folks. Yeah, this was awesome. Like, last a year ago from this day, I never thought this would be something I'd be doing. And then the build up to actual recording it's it's done and yeah we'll just see what happens next but i can definitely check that off a bucket list and yeah this episode is sponsored by our patrons on patreon and our monthly supporters on anchor wildlife observer network is a wildlife media project i started with some friends from philly on the network, we create podcasts, videos, blogs, and more. Go to wildlifeobservernetwork.com to check out more of our content. We look forward to enhancing what we currently do and expanding to other forms of wildlife content from our network of contributors. You can push this progress further by becoming a Patreon supporter today with membership starting at only $1. Any contribution means a lot, so leave a comment and don't forget to rate us so we're easier to find. I'm Tyke James, and thank you for listening to One Word for Wildlife. Be well.